the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today on the program, we'll share a conversation I had with Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They're co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And by the way, the issue of abortion is on the ballot in five states across the country. We'll also talk about a Billy Graham state-of-the-art archive that's coming to a facility in Virginia. We'll tell you more about that. And the fact that 20% of polling places all around the country are in churches. So that's coming up in the second hour of today's program. But first, some of the headline news. The pro-Kemp sheriffs are furious over Stacey Abrams' good old boys' remarks, calling them vile and disgusting. And backing blue, outgoing Liz Cheney praises the tremendous leader Nancy Pelosi and warned against a GOP majority. She's gone all in on her way out. Suggesting an energy referendum, Senator Rick Scott says it's time to send Democrats a clear message on American energy. And saying don't be overzealous, an Illinois sheriff warns that the state's new law could force civilians to take their safety into their own hands. And Money Talks, the nation's two largest teachers unions, contributed at least $2.25 million to reelect Michigan's Democrat Governor Gretchen Whitmer as unions and school choice activists continue to pour money into the race. The massive donations coming from the National Education Association and the American Federation of Teachers are going to the pro-Whitmer group Put Michigan First. Well, that organization is a federal 527 organization that's aligned with the Democratic Governors Association. The National Education Association Advocacy Fund donated a million dollars to Put Michigan First in July. And AFT Solidarity, the group affiliated with the American Federation of Teachers, donated a total of $1.25 million to that same group this year. Well, showing her true colors and anti Semitism watchdog group slammed AOC over a tweet targeting ProIsrael.org. And rocking the vote, a Pennsylvania court says undated uh, ballots won't be counted as the RNC claims a massive legal victory. And Fed Focus, uh, they're likely to deliver another huge and did interest rate hike as high inflation persists. This at uh, three quarters of a point. Iron Woman, a new Iron Mom, is the first American in 25 years to win the Iron Man gold. Well, in the scorched earth war, Iran reportedly supplied Russia with thousands of drones to use against Ukraine. A polling shows Republican gubernatorial races look winnable. The New York Post reports that Republican Representative Lee Zeldin has nudged out Democratic rival Governor Kathy Hochul in New York's closely watched gubernatorial race. But of course, until the Uh, Votes have been cast and counted. We don't actually know. But this is just a week out from the election, according to a new poll. The uh, tough on crime Zeldin is now leading the progressive incumbent governor by 48.4 percent to 47.6 percent. Very close, according to the Trafalgar Group poll released late Monday. 
to repeal cashless bail, fire rogue DAs like Alvin Bragg, stop congestion uh, pricing, and take other bold action to save our state. Hochul's got to go, Zeldin said in a statement after the poll's release. Well, the National Review weighs in. Tudor Dixon now tied 45 to 45 with Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And an Emerson College poll shows Mark Ronchetti two down points, uh, or rather down two points, 50 percent to 48 percent to to, uh, New Mexico Governor Michelle Lejeune Grisham. Well, Tulsi Gabbard has endorsed multiple GOP candidates. Now, she's a hero on the right, uh, whereas uh, Cheney, Liz Cheney, is a hero now on the left. Well, the former Democratic presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard has added her support to numerous GOP campaigns in recent days and a spree of endorsements after leaving the Democratic Party. Uh, her most recent effort to offered an unexpected endorsement with Gabbard appearing in a new um, uh, reelection ad from South Dakota Republican Governor Kristi Noem released on Tuesday. Gabbard says Tim Ryan represents everything that is wrong with the warmongering Washington establishment. I'm endorsing um, J.D. Vance, uh, one, because he knows the cost of war and that our government exists to serve the people, not the other way around. She's also given a boost to Representative Nancy Mace in South Carolina. A libertarian candidate dropped out of the Arizona Senate race while endorsing Republican Blake Masters. The Hill reports that the libertarian Mark Victor dropped out of Arizona's closely watched Senate race on Tuesday, encouraging voters to cast their ballots for Republican Blake Masters in his challenge to Senator Mark Kelly. Polls had shown Victor garnering support in the low single digits, but his small block of supporters could provide a critical boost to Masters, as surveys show the Republican only trailing Kelly by a few percentage points. American Principles reports that we will defeat anti-family Mark Kelly, vote Blake Masters for Arizona Senate. Well, stocks uh, dipped before the central bank made the uh, another interest rate increase. They dipped on Tuesday as traders assessed better than expected economic data and prepared for another rate hike from the Federal Reserve. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 79.75 points. While the S&P 500 slid 0.41 percent, the Nasdaq composite shed 0.89 percent. All major average um, opened higher but turned negative after job openings in September showed a resilient labor market. The Wall Street Journal weighs in, saying the central bank is widely expected to announce another 0.75 percent point rate increase at the end of uh, its two-day monetary policy meeting. It's now done that. Comments from Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell following the end of the meeting on Wednesday could offer clues about whether the central bank will adjust its course on monetary policy. Lanhee Chen is the standout GOP candidate in California. The California Globe reports that in a virtual one-party monopoly, the party in power can become complacent in vetting its statewide candidates. This is playing out in the race for California State Controller, where all major California newspapers have taken the extraordinary step of endorsing the candidate from the minority party, Republican Lonnie Chin. Well, the controller's job is one that seriously impacts voters' livelihoods because it concerns the protection of taxpayers and their money. The controller pays the state's bills, exposes waste by reporting state spending, and fights abuse by performing audits like those for the gas tax. But the Democratic Party has put up a candidate whose judgment, financial history, and current associations have come under fire. Lonnie Chin says that California voters have a clear choice in this year's election for controller, more of the uh, same waste and fiscal mismanagement in Sacramento, or a watchdog who will watch out for your tax dollars. 
J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan debated one last time before the election. USA Today weighs in. The Ohio Senate candidates uh, J.D. Vance and Tim Ryan made their final arguments Tuesday over abortion, immigration, inflation and other issues, including styles of leadership that could decide a pivotal U.S. Senate race. RNC research says on the securing the southern border, J.D. Vance calls for finishing the border wall and declaring the drug cartel a terrorist organization. Joe Biden doesn't want to do some of this. The Washington Free Beacon points out that J.D. Vance, why don't we just have a universal voter ID? If you're going to vote, you ought to be able to present a voter ID. I think that advocating those common sense measures doesn't mean, as some folks in the media say, that you're somehow an election denier. Well, the job market has blasted wide open. CNBC reports that job openings surged in September despite Federal Reserve efforts aimed at loosening up an historically tight labor market that's helped feed the highest inflation records in four decades. Employment openings for the month totaled 10.72 million, well above the fact set estimate of 9.85 million. The total eclipsed August upwardly revised level by nearly half a million and Fed policymakers uh, Watch the Jolts report closely for clues about the labor market. The latest numbers are unlikely to sway central bank officials from approving what likely will be the fourth consecutive and was percentage point interest rate increase this week. Well, true, the vote leaders have been found in contempt of court after failing to divulge sources for their protection. Well, the leaders of true, the vote were taken into custody on Monday morning after a federal judge in Texas ruled them in contempt of court. The founder, Catherine Um, Engelbrecht and former board member Greg Phillips were escorted by federal marshals out of the Houston courthouse and into a holding cell following the judge's decision. The order marked the latest twist in a defamation case brought last month by Connect, an election software company that True the Vote claimed allowed the Chinese government to have access to a server in China that held the personal information of nearly 2 million U.S. election workers. The post-millennial weighs in, saying the federal judge, Kenneth Hoyt, delivered the order, holding the two in contempt of court for refusing to identify the informant. Engelbrecht and Phillips testified that identifying the confidential informant would put his life at risk. Every name I give you gets doxxed and harassed, Engelbrecht said. Kenneth alleged that through the vote made baseless and racist accusations against CEO Eugene Yu which forced him and his family to flee their home. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to wind our way through some of the day's headlines. And in the second hour today, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, co-authors of Tearing Us Apart. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Before we get started, I want to let you know that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, which, by the way, is celebrating its 60th season this year, well, would love to invite you to join us. Well, bring the family to see this wonderful holiday tradition. Well, the Portland Singing Christmas Tree opens November 26th for two weekends only at Sunset Church on Northwest Cornell Road in Portland. I have an opportunity to join the choir this uh, this time around as a soloist, and I'm so looking forward to uh, lifting our voices in song for the city of Portland. Well, the concert brings the sights and sounds of Christmas while sharing the reason for the season. By the way, you can enter to win a family four-pack of tickets to the Saturday, November 26th, 2 p.m. show, and you can buy your tickets, too, at kpdq.com. So enter to win, and if you don't win the tickets, you can always just purchase them right there. Again, at kpdq.com. 
Well, Saudi Arabia shared intel with the U.S. and allies revealing Iran's plan to launch attacks to distract from protests in Iran. The National Review reports that Saudi Arabia has shared intelligence with the United States that Iran is uh, planning to launch a series of attacks in the region in an effort to distract from domestic protests. It's unclear what form the attacks will take, but the Iranians are expected to target Saudi Arabia as well as Erbil, Iraq. Uh, The news sent oil futures toward um, daily highs Tuesday as Iran desperately seeks to divert attention during a precarious period of lingering social unrest. Iran has been besieged by social unrest for nearly two months now. Violent protests have racked the country since the death of Masha Amini, an Iranian uh, woman in custody back in mid-September who lost her life. The White House National Security Council said it was concerned about the warnings and ready to respond if Iran carried out an attack. We are concerned about the threat picture and we remain in constant contact through military and intelligence channels with the Saudis, said the National Security Council spokesperson. We will not hesitate to act in the defense of our interests and partners in the region, end quote. Well, the leader of the FCC says the U.S. should ban TikTok. This isn't the first uh, call we've heard to ban TikTok. Former President uh, Trump did the same. Well, the leaders of the Federal Communications Commission on Tuesday said the U.S. government should take action to ban the China-based social media app TikTok. I don't believe there is a path forward for anything other than a ban. That's a quote from the FCC chairman, Brendan Carr. Carr, one of five FCC commissioners, highlighted concerns about how TikTok and its Chinese parent company, ByteDance, handle data from U.S. users. He says it's impossible to come up with sufficient protection on the data that you could have Sufficient confidence that it's not finding its way back into the hands of the Chinese Communist Party. Axios says that TikTok is currently in negotiations with CFIUS, an interagency committee that conducts national security reviews of foreign companies' deals, to determine whether it can be divested by Chinese parent company ByteDance to an American company and remain operational in the United States. The New York Times reported in September that a deal was taking shape, but not yet in its uh, final form, and that the Department of Justice official Lisa Monaco was concerned the deal didn't provide sufficient insulation from Beijing. Is the U.S. military in Ukraine? Now, that's not a question I've heard except for this report. In the wake of the U.S. giving billions of dollars worth of weaponry to Ukraine to assist in its war against Russia, it's being reported that U.S. military personnel are also on the ground there. To some, this admission apparently flies in the face of the repeated claims that the U.S. is not fighting in Ukraine. However, the fact that U.S. military personnel are in Ukraine does not equate them uh, to fighting in the war. As the U.S. Defense Department noted on Monday, these troops are there far from the front lines on an inspection assignment to ensure that weapons given by the U.S. are used to fight the war and do not end up being diverted or sold on the black market, you know, like in Afghanistan. Well, as a Department of Defense official stated, and I'm quoting, we see Ukraine's frontline units effectively employing security assistance every day on the battlefield. Nonetheless, we are keenly aware of the possible risk of illicit diversion and are proactively taking all available steps to prevent this from happening. End quote. Well, the Department of Defense admission confirms the U.S. has had military personnel on the ground in Ukraine for a while for weapons accountability inspections. But their presence also puts Vladimir Putin on notice that targeting these weapons stores will be met with consequences. The government will soon spend more on interest than defense. 
Well, Joe Biden has erroneously boasted that he cut the deficit in half. The only president ever to cut the deficit by more than a trillion dollars in a single year, he said of himself. Well, the truth is that Biden is claiming credit for cutting the federal deficit as the COVID emergency spending expired, while his administration's policies have only added to the federal deficit to the tune of $2.4 trillion in new government spending. Far from cutting the deficit, Biden has done the exact opposite. The result of this massive increase in government spending has not only produced a 40-year high inflation rate, but also equates to a massive increase in spending on debt-created interest. In fiscal year 2022, the federal government spent a whopping $475 billion in interest payments, up from fiscal year 2021, where it was only $352 billion. Well, by 2025, the government's spending on debt interest will exceed its annual spending on national defense. Economist Dan White observes, regardless of who wins the midterms or in 2024, there are really difficult decisions that will have to be made. This is really going to handcuff uh, members of Congress. The national debt passed $31 trillion for the first time this year, um, equating to a generation's worth of debt spending in a matter of just over five years. This reality has financial expert Peter Brookvar wondering, for decades, budget deficits didn't matter and U.S. debt didn't matter. Maybe all of a sudden they will, end quote. Well, eventually those deficit spending chickens do come home to roost. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court sided with the rule of law on mail-in ballots. And a big win for the rule of law and election integrity in the Keystone State, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that mail-in ballots that fail to conform to the state's law requiring inclusion of both a correct dating and signature are not to be counted. The court declared Pennsylvania County Boards of Election are hereby ordered to refrain from counting any absentee ballot or mail-in ballots received for the November 8, 2022 general election that are contained in, un, uh, in undated or incorrectly dated outer envelopes. This is also a big win for Republicans who raised the lawsuit against the Commonwealth to prevent election officials from including in their vote count mail-in ballots that do not meet the clear requirements of Pennsylvania's election laws. Included in the court's ruling, however, was the order to segregate and preserve any ballots contained in undated or incorrectly dated outer envelopes, as the court is evenly divided on the issue of whether failing to count such ballots violates uh, another ordinance. Earlier in October, the Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office was messaging local elections officials, informing them that they were expected to include undated ballots in their official returns for the November election. Will elections officials be vigorous in following the court's order to segregate and exclude in the official count those ballots that fail to meet the law's requirements for mail-in ballots? Well, at least at this time, election integrity proponents have a clear ruling from the court in their favor. Hillary Clinton is questioning whether voters really understand what's at stake in the midterm elections. In other words, you're too stupid to get it. Well, suburban women have bolted from the Democrat Party, according to a recent survey. And President Biden again claims his son, Bo, died in Iraq in a series of gaffes just made earlier today. The ACLU slammed the government working with big tech to decide what's true or false. And the White House vows action on gun violence in a late night statement saying thoughts and prayers are not enough. Manufacturing plummets to the lowest level since 2020. 
And the American Federation of Teachers President Randy Weingarten faced heavy scrutiny after publicizing her support for an article published on Monday that called on its readers to declare amnesty for spreading misinformation during the COVID pandemic. Brown University economist Emily Oster penned the article for The Atlantic, dubbed Let's Declare a Pandemic Amnesty on Monday, urging everyone to forgive one another for their words and actions over the virus. Despite the fact that some are still suffering the consequence of those actions, they're no longer permitted to work and the list would go on. Over 200,000 transgender people could face voting restrictions because of state ID laws. And North Korea unleashed its biggest one-day missile barrage. South Korea responded with missile launches of its own. On the election in Israel, preliminary results show Benjamin Netanyahu poised to return to power. And in a moment of satire, the Department of Homeland Security announces it will suppress as much speech as it takes to preserve democracy. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, but we'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, on this day in history, 1783, General George Washington issues his farewell address to the Army near Princeton, New Jersey. 1889, North Dakota and South Dakota become the 39th and 40th states with the signing of a proclamation by President Benjamin Harrison. 1947, Howard Hughes pilots his huge wooden flying boat, the Hughes H4 Hercules, derisively dubbed the Spruce Goose by detractors, on its only flight, which lasted about a minute over Long Beach Harbor in California. 1948, President Harry S. Truman surprises the experts by winning a narrow upset over Republican challenger Thomas E. Dewey. In fact, the headlines had already been printed, Dewey wins by the media. So nothing new under the sun, apparently. 1962, President John F. Kennedy delivers a brief statement to the nation in which he says that aerial photographs have confirmed that Soviet missiles based in Cuba were being dismantled and that progress is now being made toward the restoration of peace in the Caribbean. 1976, former Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter becomes the first candidate from the Deep South since the Civil War to be elected president as he defeats incumbent President Gerald Ford. 1986, kidnappers in Lebanon release American hospital administrator David uh, Jacobson after holding him for 17 months. 1994, a jury in Pensacola, Florida, convicts Paul Hill of murder for the shotgun slayings of an abortion provider and his bodyguard. Hill would be executed in September of 2003. By the way, murder, even of an abortionist, is not a pro-life principle. It's always wrong. 2000, American astronaut Bill Shepard and two Russian cosmonauts, Yuri Gidzenko and Sergei Krikilov, uh, become the first residents of the International Space Station. Okay, I didn't really say the Russian names correctly. I've studied Russian. I didn't have time to work on it. 2004, President George W. Bush is elected to a second term as Republicans strengthen their grip on Congress. 2014, Islamic State group extremists shoot dead at least 50 Iraqi men, women, and children from the same Sunni tribe. Also in 2014, Taliban suicide bomber kills 60 in an attack on a paramilitary checkpoint in Pakistan, close to the uh, Waga border crossing with India. Also in 2014, daredevil Nick Walinda wows Chicago and the world with two hair-raising skyscraper crossings on high wires without a safety net or a harness. 
2018, the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration says drug overdose deaths in 2017 hit the highest level ever recorded in the United States, with most of the increases due to a record number of opioid-related deaths. And finally, on this day in history, 2018, the Trump administration restores U.S. sanctions on Iran that had been lifted under a 2015 nuclear deal, but carves out exemptions for eight countries that would still be able to import Iranian oil. Well, as we've referenced, the Federal Reserve today raised its benchmark interest rate by 75 basis points for the fourth straight month as it struggles to bring runaway inflation under control, a move that threatens to further slow U.S. economic growth and exacerbate financial pain for millions of households and businesses. The three-quarter percentage point hikes in June, July, September, and November, the most aggressive series of increases since 1994, underscore just how serious Fed officials are about tackling the inflation crisis after a string of alarming economic reports. Policymakers voted unanimously to approve the latest supersized hike. The widely expected move puts the key benchmark federal funds rate at a range of 3.75% to 4%, the highest since before the 2008 financial crisis. It marks the sixth consecutive rate increase this year. Well, the White House on Wednesday deleted a tweet that credited President Biden's leadership for the increase in Social Security payments, which was flagged by Twitter as something that was actually caused by a 40-year high in inflation. So if he wants to take responsibility for the 40-year high inflation, that's another matter. Seniors are getting the biggest increase in their Social Security checks in 10 years through President Biden's leadership, the White House tweeted on Tuesday. The White House tweet was uh, accompanied by a note from Twitter that said many readers were adding context to the White House message that said the rise in Social Security payments was due to the annual cost of living adjustment, which was based on the inflation number, uh, the inflation rate, rather. And by the way, it was instituted under the Nixon administration. Now, he may have been around then, but he wasn't responsible. Well, Twitter adds context notes when it um, when they're. Rated highly enough by Twitter users, a point that Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, stressed on Wednesday morning. The community notes feature is awesome. Our goal is to make Twitter the most accurate source of information on Earth without regard to political affiliation, Musk said. Soon after the tweet was taken down, a White House official said that the decision was made because the point was incomplete. For a more complete explanation, that official um, referred uh, to a mid-October statement from the White House press secretary uh, that said Social Security checks will um, rise as Medicare premiums fall, which means seniors will have a chance to get ahead of inflation. Well, that was a nice little effort. Well, Twitter CEO Elon Musk issued a statement clarifying how the platform will proceed with election integrity and content moderation, including hate and harassment after the platform took action against several networks that looked to sway or otherwise impact American political discourse ahead of the midterm elections. In a series of tweets, Musk said he was looking into reinstating certain accounts on the platform and was establishing a content moderation council. Twitter will not allow anyone who was deplatformed for violating Twitter's rules back on uh, the platform until we have a clear process for doing so, which will take at least a few more weeks, Musk said. In a tweet to his 113 million followers, the CEO added Twitter's content moderation council will include representatives with widely divergent views, which will certainly include the civil rights community and groups who face hate fueled violence. 
Musk also said that he talked to several civil society leaders, including the Anti-Defamation League, Jonathan Sagreenblatt, the Asian American Foundation's Norman Chen, the NAACP's Derek Johnson, and more about how Twitter will continue to combat hate and harassment and enforce its election integrity policies. Musk's tweets came after the Election Integrity Partnership, a nonpartisan Coalition founded in 2020 to locate and combat misinformation on social media announced Twitter suspended six pro-Republican and pro-Democrat networks primarily located outside the U.S. that allegedly intended to influence the upcoming election. According to the EIP, the six networks, some of which included over 100,000 tweets from various users, were ultimately suspended as they violated Twitter's platform manipulation and spam policy. The content put out by five of the six networks focused primarily on U.S. policies and particularly the midterm elections uh, slated for November 8th. The sixth focused on a litany of geopolitical issues, including the Russia-Ukraine war and American foreign policy on China, with some scattered commentary on the midterms. The networks included, well, I won't even bother to go through all of that. But some changes are being implemented and we'll watch with uh, great interest and follow the story to see what Twitter under Elon Musk will actually look like. Well, Washington Post columnist George Will called on both President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris to not seek the White House in 2024 in a scathing piece today calling them unfit for office. Will, a conservative or sort of a conservative, um, uh, Known for his staunch opposition to Donald Trump was unsparing, writing that Biden is not just past his prime, but even um, adequacy is in his past. Of Harris, he wrote, her style betrays a self-satisfied exaggeration of her aptitudes, lacking natural talent she needs to prepare, but evidently doesn't. Will noted for Biden in 2020, the first time he had uh, ever supported a Democrat, but he wants a new candidate. In 2024, the Republican Party might present the nation with a presidential nominee whose unfitness has been demonstrated, Will wrote. After next Tuesday's sobering election results, Democrats should resolve not to insult and imperil the nation by doing likewise. End quote. Well, Will wrote Biden's recent falsehood that he had signed a student debt forgiveness law was an alarming reminder that he shouldn't seek another term. Rather, the handout was done through executive action and not a bill that signed into law that passed by a vote or two, as Biden erroneously claimed. He went on to write Biden was not merely again embellishing his achievements, Will wrote. This is not just another of his verbal fender benders. This is no less than dismaying explanation for his complete confusion. What vote? Who voted? Such was the starkness of Biden's remark that even CNN fact checker Daniel Dale, who has gone weeks at various points without pinning a fact check of the president, called him out in an October 24th article. It's frightening that Biden does not know or remember what he recently did regarding an immensely important policy. He must be presumed susceptible to further episodes of similar bewilderment. He should leave the public stage on January 20th. 2025, Will wrote. The same went for Harris. Will said, ripping her eerie strangeness as manifested in such remarks as her expounding on her love of electric school buses, her word salad on the significance of the passage of time, a repetition of the phrase work together at recent summit and other widely panned remarks 
have been have um, become right wing fodder. She sounds, as a critic has said, like someone giving a book report on a book she has not read, Will wrote. And he added complacency and arrogance make a ruinous compound. Regarding Biden and Harris, the National Democratic Party faces two tests of stewardship. It's uh, imprimatur cannot again be bestowed on either of them. He wrote Biden is not just past his prime, even adequacy is in his past. And this is Harris's prime. Biden has repeatedly said he is planning to seek reelection. And while a conservative who has spoken out against the Biden administration on policy matters like the student debt handout, Will has made no secret of his disdain at the idea of another term for Trump. Trump is an open book who has been reading itself to the nation for 40 years, he quipped in a piece earlier this year. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to hear from Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis, a conversation I had on their book, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. And on the ballot for this midterm election, five states will be taking up that very issue. Well, John Stossel, who is known as um, something as a of a um, consumer advocate, uh, wrote a piece recently on inconvenient facts regarding electric cars. And I wanted to share part of it with you. He writes that electric car sales are up 66% this year. President Joe Biden promotes them saying things like the great American road trip is going to be fully electrified and there's no turning back. End quote. Well, to make sure we have no choice in the matter, some left-leaning states like Oregon and Washington and California have moved to ban gas-powered cars altogether. California Governor Gavin Newsom issued an executive order banning them by 2035. Oregon, Massachusetts, New York copied California. Washington state's politicians said they'd make it to happen even faster by 2030. 30 countries also say they'll phase out gas-powered cars. But this is just dumb, Stossel writes. It will not happen. It's magical thinking. In my new video, I point out some inconvenient facts about electric cars, simple truths that politicians and green activists just don't seem to understand. Electric cars are amazing, says physicist Mark Mills of the Manhattan Institute, but they won't change the future in any significant way as far as oil use or carbon dioxide emissions, end quote. Inconvenient fact number one. Selling more electric cars won't reduce oil use very much. The world has 15, 18 million electric vehicles now, says Mills. If we somehow got to 500 million, that would reduce world oil consumption by about 10 percent. That's not nothing, but it doesn't end the use of oil. Most of the world's oil is used by things like airplanes, buses, big trucks and the mining equipment that gets the copper to build the electric cars. Well, even if all vehicles somehow did switch to electricity, there's another problem. Electricity isn't very green. I laugh talking to friends who are all excited about their electric car, assuming it doesn't pollute. They go silent when I ask, where does the car's electricity come from? They didn't know. They don't know. They haven't even thought about it. Inconvenient fact number two. Although driving an electric car puts little additional carbon into the air, producing the electricity to charge its battery adds plenty. Most of America's electricity is produced by burning natural gas and coal. Just 12% comes from wind or solar power. 
Auto companies don't advertise that. Electric vehicles in general are better and more sustainable for the environment, says Ford's Linda Zhang in a BBC interview. She's a Ford engineer. I say to Mill, she's not ignorant. She's not stupid, he replies, but ignorance speaks to what you know. You have to mine somewhere on Earth 500,000 pounds of minerals and rocks to make one battery. American regulations make mining difficult, so most of it's done elsewhere, polluting those countries. Some mining is done by children. Some is done in places that have slave labor. Myanmar is one example. Even if those horrors didn't exist, mining itself adds lots of carbon to the air. If you're worried about carbon dioxide, says Mills, the electric vehicle has emitted 10 to 20 tons of carbon dioxide from the mining, manufacturing, and shipping before it even gets to your driveway. Volkswagen published an honest study in which they point out that the first 60,000 miles or so uh, you're driving an electric vehicle, that electric vehicle will have emitted more carbon dioxide than if you had driven a conventional vehicle. You would have to drive an electric car 100,000 miles to reduce emissions by just 20 to 30 percent, which is not nothing, but it's not zero. No, it's not. If you live in New Zealand, where there's a lot of hydro and geothermal power, electric cars pollute less. But in America, your zero-emission vehicle adds lots of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. Politicians and electric car sellers, don't, they don't mention that. Most probably don't even know. In a future column, three more con- inconvenient facts about, cars, uh, about electric cars. And by the way, I'll try to share those with you when they are uh, produced. Inconvenient facts about electric cars and pollution. Well, the University of North Carolina School of Medicine is putting politics before patients. They're forcing applicants, students, professors to constantly prove their commitment to tenets of diversity, equity and inclusion as a prerequisite to advancement rather than basing such decisions on merit alone, according to a new report from the nonprofit Do Not Harm obtained exclusively by National Review. Now, you might think it's a good thing, diversity, equity and inclusion, until you find out how are they defining uh, this trinity? Well, the report from Do Not Harm, a nonprofit found Uh, To push back against ascendant racial equity agenda in medicine comes just days after oral arguments in a case putting the UNC race conscious uh, underground admission system on trial. Do not harm notes that the School of Medicine also lists diversity to include race, gender identity, sexual orientation and more as an element to be considered in its own admissions and hiring process. But the school's uh, commitment to DEI stretches far beyond a belief in the merits of affirmative action. It's also one of many medical schools that uses its uh, application questions to weed out students who might be skeptical of the agenda. One question in the UNC uh, application states that UNC School of Medicine values diversity and inclusion across the institution. We believe that education and professional development are enhanced in educational settings that include individuals from diverse backgrounds and experiences. Well, there's no dispute there. The application goes on to ask students to describe how your background and or experiences would contribute to the UNC SOM community. Hmm. Well, if students aren't especially enthusiastic about woke culture before setting foot on campus, they're um, steeped in it once they arrive. In 2020, the administration convened the task force for integrating social justice into the curriculum and asked the group to establish clear goals, strategies, uh, action steps 
metrics and outcomes to enhance the uh, the integration of social justice and to specify the anti-racism components of the curricular pieces proposed. Yes, but can they perform an operation? Faculty, too, are asked to pass ideological litmus tests. Now, we're talking about the United States. The second item listed in the school's required common criteria for appointment, reappointment, and promotion for viable fixed-term and tenure-track is whether a professor has made a positive contribution to DEI efforts on campus by working social justice into the classroom, uh, completing DEI trainings, and participating in departmental DEI committee work. Dr. Stanley Goldfarb, uh, Dumont uh, Harms chairman and former associate dean at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine, argues that these DEI criteria are indefensible in a letter sent to the uh, dean of UNC, as well as North Carolina governor, attorney general and state legislative leaders. It is inappropriate to require that candidates for promotion and tenure demonstrate their commitment to a political ideology. Goldfarb writes in a letter obtained by National Review, far from being a value neutral concept, DEI is an inherently ideological enterprise rooted in non-scientific and non-medical philosophies, including critical race theory and anti-racism, forcing candidates to declare their support for DEI. When many undoubtedly oppose it would compel dishonesty, he continues. Moreover, forcing candidates to show a track record of involvement in DEI would compel participation in political activities. All of this is deeply illiberal and violates the basic tenets of academic freedom. Well, the Curriculum Task Force has produced a report filled with with an extensive glossary of DEI-related terms and recommendations for how to improve both the official and hidden curriculum, which the task force defines as the unspoken or implicit academic, social, and cultural message that are communicated to students while they are in school, and also proposes that campus administration respond more forcefully to perceived slights uh, from this this, uh, worldview. Now, keep in mind that the Southern um, Poverty Law Center recently identified the Family Research Council, for example, as an organization that falls outside the mainstream on the same level as the Ku Klux Klan. So when you're talking about ideology, it doesn't necessarily mean you're talking about avowed racists or uh, individuals that we would all agree are not welcome in the, uh, in the in the public discourse, but we're talking about mainstream beliefs that run contrary to this leftist ideology. And it is very concerning, as the professor suggests. Well, we need to take a break for news and traffic here at the top of the hour. Uh, when we re- uh, return, we'll have an opportunity to hear from Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeStanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, as we all know by now, Roe versus Wade has been overturned. Many of us still marvel that it happened in our lifetimes. It does change things, but it does also present for us significant challenges. Well, just in time for the Supreme Court's official overruling of Roe versus Wade, pro-life scholar Ryan T. Anderson and pro-life journalist Alexandra DeSanctis released the ultimate guide, and I use that word deliberately, the ultimate guide to the pro-life policy issue titled Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is captivating. It reframes the ongoing debate in the current climate with the truth. And this um, that this 50, uh, nearly 50 years experiment 
uh, with um, unlimited abortion in America has harmed everyone, even its most passionate proponents. Tearing Us Apart is a comprehensive guide. It's made for everyone because the Supreme Court decision affected everyone all of our lives. Well, Ryan T. Anderson is a Ph.D., the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. He is the author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment and Truth Overruled, The Future of Marriage and Religious Freedom. He's a graduate of Princeton and Notre Dame. He is the St. John Paul II Teaching Fellow in Social Thought at the University of Dallas. He lives on a small family farm in Virginia with his wife and their three children. Alexandra DeSanctis is visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, is a staff writer at National Review, and is widely published journalist covering politics, abortion, the pro-life movement, elections, and religion. She, too, is a graduate of Notre Dame and a former William F. Buckley Jr. Fellow in political journalism at the National Review Institute. She lives in Northern Virginia with her husband, and we are delighted to have both of you with us today. Welcome. Great to be with you. having us. This is such a significant moment because while Roe versus Wade has been overturned and the decision making on the subject of abortion has been returned to the people, the nation is grappling with how to move forward. And for many pro-lifers in particular, uh, the challenge for us is to rethink the, the direction that we ought to go. Let's begin, as you do in the, the book, uh, talking about the major harm that abortion uh, produces. You might assume your first chapter is titled Abortion Harms the Unborn Child. You might assume that we could at all at least agree on that point. But in 21st century America, in post-Roe America, we don't even agree largely on that point. So let's begin there. Sure thing. I mean, so unfortunately, in 21st century America, there are science deniers. There are people who deny the basic scientific reality that the entity in the womb is an unborn human being. There are also still in 21st century America, equality deniers, people who deny that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with their right to life. Um, So the the, the more sophisticated pro-choice activists will concede the biological point, right? They don't want to be science deniers. So they'll say, yes, it is an unborn human being, but then they will deny the equality point. And they say, well, but it's not equal to us. It's not yet a moral person. This is the Peter Singer style um, arguments that you get from, you know, one of the, form, the, the professors at my alma mater at Princeton, um, they can't affirm the declaration. They don't really believe that all human beings are created equal and endowed by their creator with an inalienable right to life. And that's where we are in 21st century America, right? People either denying the science about the unborn child or the morality, the equality. And what Alexandra and I do in that very first chapter of the book is we just marshal the evidence. We go through the science that shows that it's a human being. We go through the philosophy um, that demonstrates that it should be treated equal because that unborn human being is our equal. And then we look at the politics of the law, why it's not an overreach of the government to protect the natural right to life of every human being born and unborn. Would you like to comment on that as well, Alexandra? Well, I think Ryan covered it uh, pretty pretty successfully there. But uh, the last point that we, we do cover in that chapter that I think is important to note is um, kind of the, the way in which abortion supporters claim that even if an unborn child is uh, a, a human person or a human being and a, a human person, somehow um, a mother's right to her own body or a woman's right to her own body trumps the child's right to life. And this is just the wrong framework, right? We should be thinking about the duties that parents have and a mother has and a father has to care for their children. Not This is not a competition of rights. And, and the fact that a child is, has come into being inside 
his or her mother is not licensed to kill that child. It's a, a requirement to care for him. Interestingly, we have come to accept the notion, and I'm speaking broadly of the culture, that women need abortion to be equal and empowered. And you argue in the book that neither thing has been accomplished. Rather, there has been harm that you outline in detail uh, as a consequent. Talk talk a bit about that claim that uh, in order for women to be equal to, to men in our culture uh, and empowered in our culture, she has to have the freedom to destroy uh, the child developing in her in utero and how that accomplishes exactly the opposite. Yeah, I mean, this is a, a pervasive claim. I think this is the, the predominant argument in favor of abortion. And it, it's so prominent even that the Supreme Court repeated this very idea in its decision in, in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 1992, essentially upholding the, the Roe v. Wade decision. The court said we can't overturn Roe, at least in part because women have come to rely on abortion. Women can't participate in the, the social or economic life of our nation unless they have abortion as part of helping them order their reproductive lives. And this is a, a really damaging notion for women um, for a number of reasons, you know, not least of which is that abortion actually harms women. Um, but the idea of abortion harms women, too, right? The notion that there's something dysfunctional or disordered about the female body, about pregnancy, about, you know, the female mode of reproduction, this takes the male body as the norm and as the ideal and treats women as though there's something wrong with them or as though to kind of participate in a man's world, women have to just get rid of whatever the the consequences might be of sex and and act as though they were never pregnant uh, in order to be able to kind of compete or be on equal footing with men. We're told that, um, Abortion is first and foremost a matter of female autonomy, that it is a benefit to her. And again, in the book, you go in great detail. And I've been in the pro-life movement for decades. This is the best I've ever read on the subject. But you go into detail uh, about the, the, the cost and the. Um, the tremendous message it sends to a woman to suggest that she must fight against, she must reject uh, her own offspring in order to pursue her own interests. And the, the tremendous toll that takes certainly on her, but for the broader culture, the, the father, the broader family and so on. Yeah, that's right. I mean, one of the things that we and, and first, you, uh, thank you for saying um, that um, Alexander and I worked hard to try to make this um, a very clear, compassionate and persuasive compiling of all of the evidence, all of the arguments. Uh, and so it's gratifying to hear you um, say that about the book. And uh, what we wanted to show is that there's a better way of understanding what um, women's equality should look like. Um, that what we got for the past 49 and a half years, a, a version of equality that says in order to be equal, you have to deny your most distinctively feminine attributes. Right, the, 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 the God-given blessing that you can carry a child in your own womb, that to be equal to men, you have to deny that. You have to either sterilize your body or kill your offspring. That's a false vision of equality. And a true vision of equality, it, it's a colleague of ours at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, Erica Bakiaki, who talked about there's an asymmetrical nature to human reproduction. And true equality takes that asymmetry seriously. Rather than trying to force women to live as if defective men, it says the the female way of being human is equal to the male way of being human. And we can structure our laws. We can structure our marketplaces. We can structure our education system, including higher education, in ways that take both ways of being human seriously. 
One of the things that you argue in the book, uh, post-abortion, that women risk emotional and psychological damage. We're being told in the broader culture that there is no fallout. This is such a benefit. It's such a relief. It opens such a broad uh, set of options for a woman who has chosen to reject her child in favor of her own autonomy, that there is no emotional or psychological damage. And women who uh, who dare to speak up. Um, are simply denied, um, first of all, being heard and that they exist. Yeah, this is a really a damaging aspect, I think, of the pro-abortion rhetoric, right? Because the, the argument now for abortion is we have to celebrate this. This is a social good. It's not we don't talk about it as safe, legal and rare anymore. We're supposed to celebrate abortion and, and act as though it's always this wonderful solution for women. But the fact is, that's actually not most women's experience of abortion. We know uh, from statistics that most women choose abortion because they feel like it's their only option. They're not choosing it because they think it's great or a perfect solution. They're choosing it because they're, they're desperate, essentially, or they're not get, you know, getting support from the father of the child. They're not getting support from their own family. And we know that after the fact, a lot of women do suffer, like you mentioned, from psychological after effects, whether it's you know, uh, guilt, regret, depression, anxiety, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, even suicide. Uh, at elevated rates after having had an abortion. And these women are, are simply ignored or even attacked uh, when they, they share their experiences because we're all supposed to believe that abortion is this wonderful solution. You also write about the fact that abortion harms the family, the relationship between a mother and a father, the extended family, and so on. Does that make a difference when we're talking about the autonomy of a single woman being able to determine her own future? Well, yes. I mean, what, what many women report is that the reason they feel constrained, uh, pressured, unable to carry the child into the world, but forced by circumstances to think that abortion is their least bad option is precisely because they don't have the support of a marital partner, an extended family. Um, uh, a really interesting uh, statistic is you are a child um, uh, conceived inside of marriage. You have a four percent chance of dying by abortion. If you were a child conceived outside of marriage, you have a 40% chance of dying by abortion. Uh, another way of putting uh, the statistic is that um, of all women who um, seek abortion, only 14% of them are married. By contrast, 86% of women who have abortions are unmarried. Marriage is the best protector of the unborn uh, because what marriage does, it, it ensures that that man is committed to that woman before children are brought into the world. Uh, anytime you're contemplating an abortion, a child has already been brought into the world. The only question is, will that child be able to exit the womb and you know, enter the, the, the visible world to the naked eye? Marriage is the best protector of unborn children. It's also an institution that really helps um, uh, uh, allow mothers to care for their children and to bring them um, into the next stage of their, of their lives. We're talking this afternoon uh, with Ryan Alexander and Alexandra uh, excuse me, Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are the co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must read in this post-war era, whether you are pro-abortion or pro-life, um, I would highly recommend it. We're going to take a quick break. We will return in a moment and continue our conversation. So do please stay with us. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. At the time the book was being written and uh, just about to be released, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. It could not be more timely, giving us a perspective on where we go from here. Uh, and I so appreciate the uh, the effort that they put into writing uh, this uh, manual, I would say, for moving forward. Uh, let me ask you about the decision the Supreme Court made. At the time, as I mentioned, you were writing this book. It wasn't clear which direction the court was going to go. They obviously overturned Roe versus Wade, and there's been a lot of discussion since about what the Constitution actually says about abortion. Those who support uh, abortion rights throughout uh, a pregnancy believe that there is a constitutional right because the Supreme Court said there was. Others who have recognized that there is no constitutional right rejoice that they finally got it right. Your thoughts on the decision that was made by the U.S. Supreme Court? Well, sure, so there's nothing. Was... You can take it, Ryan. <laughs> so, okay. I was going to say there's nothing in the Constitution that even remotely could be construed uh, to protect our right to choose to kill an unborn human being. Uh, whether it was the original Roe v. Wade decision that said it was a privacy right or then the Casey decision that said it was a liberty right, um, or then you know, the, 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 the hope for academic argument was that it was an equality right. This was something that Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had embraced later in life and many academic defenders of abortion. So, well, you know, whether it's privacy, liberty, or equality, all of those rights, those are real rights, but they all have limits. And neither privacy nor liberty nor um, equality justifies killing another innocent human being. And so our Constitution... Uh, rightly understood, has never protected a right to abortion. The Supreme Court simply got it wrong 49 and a half years ago. It repeated the error um, uh, 30 years ago in Planned Parenthood v. Casey. And all the court has done in the Dobbs case is admitted its mistake and overturned Roe and Casey. Now, there are some pro-life scholars, and, and Alexander and I are sympathetic to this argument, although we think you know more research needs to be done, and the current Supreme Court isn't there yet that argue that rightly understood the 14th Amendment to our Constitution, which prohibits any state from denying equal protection of the law to any person, that that should include the unborn uh, human person. Uh, I don't think the current court, uh, the votes simply aren't there, which means that in the meantime, we need to pass laws at the state level protecting unborn babies. We need to pass laws at the federal level. Uh, We need to work to either have a constitutional amendment or to have justices that interpret the 14th Amendment that way, because ultimately we can't be half uh, abortion, half uh, pro-life, in the same way that we couldn't be half slave, half free. As Lincoln taught us, the house divided cannot stand. So eventually we need to come to a national But we're going to start by doing this state by state, right? We're not there yet, so we need to be um, making progress at the state level uh, today. You write in the book, Tearing Us Apart, how the pro-life community can respond to our current uh, situation. And we'll perhaps get into that a bit later, but it's an important part of the book. Uh, but but let me ask you, um, the damage that has been done uh, to the medical profession in this nearly 50 years of abortion on de- demand before Roe versus Wade, of course, abortion was legal in some places, including my home state, regrettably, my home state of Oregon and other uh, other states. But what has abortion on demand uh, done to the medical profession in terms of perverting its primary purpose and reducing the unborn to something less than worthy of the kind of medical attention that one presumed the oath required uh, preserving. 
Yeah, so the, the problem, of course, with abortion is that it's not actually a healthcare procedure, right? It's a, a procedure that kills an innocent human being. There are two patients involved in every abortion. There are two human beings there, the mother and the child, and abortion targets one of those human beings for death, and it's not medically necessary. It doesn't cure any disease. It doesn't solve any ailment. It doesn't treat any problem. It just kills a child because a woman doesn't want to be pregnant for whatever reason. And so at that point, once you have a, a country where this is accepted as a, a form of healthcare and where some number of doctors are willing to perform this procedure, even though it's not medically necessary, uh, that perverts our understanding of what healthcare is and it perverts our understanding of what a doctor is. So now instead of being a, a medical professional who's using his talents uh, to cure and heal, a doctor becomes a, essentially a technician for hire who's using the tools of his trade to, to kill. Um, and so that, that has um, very unfortunate downstream effects on, on all of our, med- our uh, medical field. You know, it's rather interesting in the book, you offer some examples of medical professionals who practiced abortion um, some uh, for many, many years before coming to the realization that they are destroying a human body. It's, it's difficult to imagine that you couldn't uh, that you would be involved in the practice and not recognize that until there's an epiphany at some point. Uh, can you talk a little bit uh, about um, how some of these medical professionals, professionals who have had an about face uh, after having performed abortion for a long period of time and what the mitigating circumstance is that reverses their perspective on what they have known from a technical and medical standpoint all along? Sure. I mean, perhaps the most famous example is Bernard uh, Nathanson, yes. who is you know, one of the founders of NARAL Pro-Choice, um, you know, one of the largest um, abortion activist groups uh, and abortion uh, providers uh, in the country. And um, I think Bernard Nathanson himself performed several hundred, if not thousands, abortions. He also oversaw the performing of several thousand abortions in clinics that he oversaw. Um, I don't remember right now what the exact catalyst was um, in his case. I know one of the other stories that we tell in the book uh, was an abortionist um, whose daughter tragically yes. died. And then when he returned to work and he's in the middle of performing an abortion, you know, he kind of breaks down. He realizes, I just killed someone else's child. Um, and this was after having spent a couple months off mourning the loss of his own child. Um, which is simply to say that, you know, there's a law written on the heart. Um, people know the truth, especially the, the abortionists, uh, because, you know, they, they, they physically they see the unborn child that they, uh, in some instances, are literally tearing apart limb by limb. Um, and then something needs to prick their conscience. Right? It, it, it's, it's not enough just to know the facts. There also then, it seems, needs to be something that alivens them, awakens them, not just to a fact, but also to a value to a moral norm, to a moral truth. Um, and, you know, sometimes it, a religious conversion, sometimes the religious conversion comes second, right? They first are c- converted to the pro-life cause, and then they start asking deeper questions. Well, what is it about life that explains the dignity and the sanctity? And then they arrive uh, at the conclusion of God. But, you know, every individual is unique. And so no two stories are going to be the same. Um, yeah. How has a, a legal abortion harmed our politics and the rule of law? Well, there's quite a bit to unpack there. Some of the, the main points we make in the book, I'll, I'll focus on, on one uh, main one, I guess, is the way that uh, the legalization of abortion has really broken down our uh, our political parties, and, and in particular, the Democratic Party. 
you know, before Roe was decided, there was such a thing as a pro-life Democrat. Um, a huge number of Democratic politicians consider themselves pro-life, even, you know, voted pro-life. Joe Biden, even right after Roe v. Wade himself, voted uh, in favor of a bill that would have essentially undone what had happened in Roe. And we know kind of where he ended up. So um, there's been a, a big change on this in the Democratic Party. And I think we're all worse off because we have a, a, one of our two major political parties uh, that embraces abortion on demand for any reason. So much so that, uh, you know, you have Democratic presidential candidates now telling pro-lifers not to vote for them uh, because that's how, how uh, committed they are to abortion on demand, um, even though most Democrats, most Democratic voters are not where the party is on this issue at all. Only about 18 percent um, of Democratic voters support abortion on demand until birth. And yet the party has, has fully embraced this, um, this position. And it, I think we're, we're all worse off because of this. We'd be a much better country if, if voters had a meaningful choice between two political parties, neither of which was was committed to this kind of injustice. Mm -hmm. Uh, One example in a speech at the NAACP annual convention in Atlanta uh, earlier this month, the vice president uh, compared pro-lifers in the Supreme Court decision in Dobbs uh, to the slaver, a slave owner of the Old South. Uh, She said, our country has a history of claiming ownership over human bodies. Uh, Her historical reference was accurate, but the analogy was completely reversed. Uh, Again, an example of the misunderstanding of what abortion on demand actually is. She got it exactly wrong. Yes. I mean, imagine the the claim, you know, if you don't like slavery, don't own a slave or the claim. I'm personally opposed to slavery, but politically or publicly, I'm in favor of your choice to have a slave. I mean, that's what's at stake when someone says, oh, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I'm you know, in favor of choice, or if you don't like abortion, don't don't have an abortion. Um, the idea that um, the the decide in this debate that's in favor of protecting the right to life of the unborn child is actually the analog to um, the slave owner is just ludicrous. And there have been a variety of academics trying to claim that the Thirteenth Amendment um, is actually the, the justification for uh, abortion. Um, and they just seem utterly unwilling to acknowledge that there's already a moral relationship that has taken place. There's already a relationship between that mother and that child. And it's not, you know, involuntary servitude to say that no one, including mothers, can kill their own, uh, can kill anyone, right? I mean, it's one thing to say we shouldn't kill strangers. It's another thing to say mothers shouldn't kill their own children. We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick um, a quick break. Again, we're talking about uh, the fabulous book that should be in your library if you would like to be effective during this season, post-row, Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. My guests, Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. They are co-authors of Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. It is a must-read, and I would highly recommend it. Uh, on the subject of abortion in America post-Roe. They cover how abortion harms children, how it harms women and their families, uh, how it harms equality and choice. One of the uh, champions of abortion 
and on demand, uh, how it harms medicine and the rule of law, politics uh, and the media and popular culture. And importantly, uh, what the pro-life movement should do next, which is precisely the question I want to put to our guests now. Given the situation we find ourselves in, I think many folks thought once Roe versus Wade is overturned, our work is done. We recognize now that that is not the case. What should the pro-life movement do next? Well, we talk about this a bit in our in our conclusion. Well, at length yes. in our conclusion, and we don't give um, too many specific prescriptions. But the, the main thing we call for is, first of all, charity among pro-lifers and, and prudence as we disagree and discern what the next right steps are. Right, because what's what's possible in one state is not always going to be possible somewhere else. There are a number of states at this point that have almost total protections for unborn children from the moment of conception. And there are a lot of states where, unfortunately, those laws just aren't politically feasible right now. And so there has to be some kind of room for, for incrementalism and for understanding that we have to change hearts and minds even as we push for more and more protective laws. Um, so that would be, a, I think, a major part of the strategy. I know that you write about pregnancy resource centers. They have been the subject of uh, violence and opposition of late since the uh, early leak of um, what was likely to be the overturn of Roe versus Wade. What do you say about these pro-life centers that in many cases outnumber abortion clinics across the country uh, and the value that they and the role that they will play moving forward in this post-Roe era? These pregnancy resource centers um, are a godsend to thousands of women, uh, women who don't want abortion, women who want to bring their children um, out of the womb and into the world and they get no assistance from people who claim to be pro-choice. I mean, I think the attacks that we've seen of pregnancy resource centers really put to lie the claim that the other side is pro-choice. The other side, unfortunately, the activists on the other side is very much pro-abortion. Right? That's what that's the choice that Planned Parenthood will help you with. They won't actually help you if you're planning to be a parent and you have an unborn child in your womb who you want to uh, bring to term. The pregnancy resource centers do that. Um, and they exist merely to serve those women who voluntarily come to them, seeking their assistance. And that's why it's so utterly grotesque, if not downright satanic, that we've seen the attacks on them over the past several weeks and several months since the opinion was leaked. Uh, and, and I think it's also particularly um, uh, um, just unacceptable how unwilling law enforcement has been to go after the people perpetrating these crimes uh, and really you know, protecting the rights, the freedom, the safety of these pregnancy resource centers to minister uh, to women who are seeking their assistance. In the book, Tearing Us Apart, you make the point that abortion is more than a religious issue. But what would you say to those who argue that it's Christian to support women's right to abortion? We're hearing that a lot from lawmakers, but we might hear it a little closer to home as well. Well, I find this argument very absurd because it usually comes from the same people who, who try to claim that being opposed to abortion is just uh, forcing our religion on others. And they, they're very opposed to that. But then suddenly they also want to have it both ways and, and argue that uh, supporting abortion is Christian. So there's clearly a double standard here. But uh, more to the point, perhaps it's, of course, not Christian to support killing innocent human beings. Now, it, it is Christian to support women in difficult circumstances who are dealing with an unplanned pregnancy, who need help. Uh, and support as they, they parent or, uh, you know, as they welcome their child. But killing that child is never actually a Christian solution, no matter what situation a woman might be facing. Uh, you know, telling her that it's a, a solution of some kind to enact violence, lethal violence against her child is, is deeply unchristian and, and deeply wrong. 
I, I like the phrase that you use throughout the book, and I, to say I like it is a bit odd, but um, lethal violence, to, to subject a child to lethal violence, which is a perfect description of what abortion is. One of the points you make is that we don't really talk about abortion. We use euphemisms, but we don't talk about what actually happens, and we try to distance ourselves from that because I think to confront it face on is perhaps too painful for most people. There are some, of course, who might be the exception. Uh, how how important is it for us to understand precisely what it is we're talking about, what happens in uh, these situations, and whether or not we, f- we frame our uh, opinions based on euphemisms or what's actually happening? Oh, it's vitally important. This is why the other side speaks in euphemism. It's why the other side um, doesn't actually speak clearly and truthfully about what's going on. It's why the other side right now, as we're speaking, is lying about ectopic pregnancy care, lying about miscarriage care to claim that pro-life laws of the prohibit care in these cases. It's why they use euphemisms like sex-selective abortion rather than, you know, using accurate language. This is a lethal discrimination on the basis of sex. I mean, and it's just so um, fascinating to me that the voices that are loudest in condemning racial discrimination, sex-based discrimination, disability-based discrimination, they go silent or even worse, they cheerlead when it's lethal discrimination on the basis of race, lethal discrimination on the basis of sex, lethal discrimination on the basis of disability, which is what we see when we have uh, more black babies being aborted Mm -hmm. than born in New York City. We have millions of missing girls across the globe. We have countries like Iceland claiming to have eradicated Down syndrome, when in reality, they have eradicated people with Down syndrome. They didn't find a cure for the genetic disorder. What they've done is successfully diagnosed and killed all of the um, children diagnosed with Down syndrome. Um, So it's very important that we don't fall for the euphemism um, that the other side uses to talk about these issues, that we speak the truth clearly and compassionately. Well, I appreciate, too, that you go into the the history and the founding of the abortion movement, that the eugenicist uh, perspective has been successful even in our century in that there's a disproportionate number of Hispanic and African-American babies who are subject to abortions in this country. Uh, an inconvenient truth that, uh, again, is overlooked or minimized because this is creating opportunity for for black women moving forward. Yeah, this is a very disturbing argument. And, and you see, um, in fact, in the, the wake of Roe having been overturned, abortion supporters making the argument that this is disproportionately going to affect uh, non-white populations and women. And, and my first thought is, well, if that's true, shouldn't we be supporting these women, right? The idea that kind of ramping up abortion numbers or, or building more abortion facilities in these neighborhoods is not actually a solution. If, if women uh, of color are feeling like they have to choose abortion at higher rates, then that's a, a serious problem in our society. And we should be working to support those women, not just kind of helping them access abortion as much as, as, as uh, you know, Planned Parenthood would like them to. Yeah, absolutely. Well, what can pro-life, and we've touched on this a little bit, but pro-life advocates do to make it easier for women to choose life. We've talked about the pregnancy resource centers, but for the individual, what do you recommend? Because uh, I think when they read the book, they're, they're going to want to be proactive and not just better informed. What can we do to help support women? There's an endless variety of things that we can do. And it all depends on what our station in life, our vocation in life is. I mean, for some of us, it's going to be prayer. Actually, for all of us, it should be prayer. (laughs) Um, For many of us, it's going to be a financial contribution. Uh, Look up your local pregnancy resource center and start making a monthly contribution. 
perhaps volunteering your time at that local pregnancy resource center. Um, perhaps it's becoming a foster parent. Perhaps it's becoming an adoptive parent. Uh, perhaps it's, you know, writing that letter to the editor, writing the op-ed for your local newspaper. Perhaps it's lobbying your state representative. It's going to um, the state house and speaking with your elected representatives to make sure that they pass the good laws that will be protecting the unborn babies. Maybe it's working on paid family leave or maternity care. I mean, there's a variety of uh, both kind of supply side and demand side uh, public policies that we can be looking at. The supply side being the abortionist, uh, the people who supply the lethal action, the demand. Why do women have a demand? Why, why do they think they need abortion? There are public policies that can address that as well. Um, so there really is an, you know, an infinite number of things uh, readers could do after um, finishing the book. And a lot really just depends on what their station in life and their vocation in life is. Well, and again, I want to emphasize that at the conclusion of the book, you offer a number of uh, things to think about in terms of how we can uh, contribute to this new um, this new landscape post row in a state like Oregon. It's definitely an uphill battle, but one that we've been engaged in for for decades and will continue uh, in other parts of the country. There may be um, a restriction on abortion that we could only have dreamed of years ago. So there's plenty of work to be done. And it begins, as you pointed out. Uh, with prayer and then being willing to uh, to move forward in action. I, again, want to thank both of you for the uh, clearly the hard work that you did in putting this book together. And I would suggest that our listeners get a copy of the book, read it and um, purpose to move forward in favor of life. Again, the title is Tearing Us Apart, How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. Dr. Ryan T. Anderson and Alexandra DeSanctis. Thank you both so much for being with us today. Thank you. Appreciate thank you. It. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, tomorrow on the program, Dr. Greg Jantz, author of Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal, will also hear from Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible, this time focusing on the book of Deuteronomy. Also want to remind you that the Portland Singing Christmas Tree, we're giving away family four packs of tickets for the Saturday, November 26th performance at 2 o'clock p.m. Uh, you can buy your tickets, uh, but you can also enter to win at kpdq.com. This is the 60th anniversary. They're celebrating the 60th season this year uh, and an opportunity to bring your family and friends to kick off the season just right. Well, a new uh, research facility is gathering the full documentary record of the evangelist's life, Billy Graham, his work uh, to make the uh, case for his continued relevance. Well, when he watched Billy Graham preach, David Bruce, he couldn't help but think of the of history. He was the executive assistant of the famous evangelist, and it wasn't his job to think about the distant future. But Billy Graham's legacy, how he would be remembered um how he died, how uh, the evidence of his life's work would be maintained was, in fact, something that he thought should be considered. Each word and moment seemed so significant that it needed to be preserved. Well, when he finished preaching, I would come behind him and gather the pages of his sermon, Bruce recalled this summer. Four years after Graham's death, he was not thinking of that, but I could see the call of God on his life and all the history he touched. Well, today he's overseeing a state-of-the-art monument to the preservation of that history, a 30,000-square-foot, $12 million archive. It's going to open on November 7th on Billy Graham's birthday. A well-lit research room sits quietly on the first floor of the building. It was constructed in consultation with archival design specialist Michelle Pacifico 
and now waits for historians to come and ask for boxes and files. Upstairs in a carefully climate-controlled room, industrial shelves hold thousands of acid-free archival containers, each with hundreds of papers. Another room houses oversized uh, items uh, from a pair of gifted uh, uh, lederhosen (laughs) uh, to Graham's uh, traveling pulpit. The Charlotte, North Carolina Research Facility, I think I said Virginia earlier, North Carolina, located across the road from Billy Graham Library Museum, gathers for the first time the full documentary record of Graham's life and work in one place. I've often wondered, what would he think about uh, about this, if he would think it's too much? Uh, Nonetheless, for those who have known and loved him and recognize his influence, it will be an interesting archival resource. Well, the archives that were loaned to the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College will be combined with the hundreds and hundreds of boxes that remained at Graham's home office in Montreat, North Carolina, and additional material from his ministry's former offices in Minneapolis and in storage in Charlotte will all be brought together. We really are trying to make everything as accessible as possible, the archivist uh, Lindsay Elliott said, who previously worked with uh, at the Jimmy Carter Presidential Museum in Atlanta. We want to offer the full breadth of his ministry from the material at the uh, Montreat uh, home to the productions of the worldwide pictures. We're describing and classifying everything. We want to look at the entirety of it. When plans for the new archives were announced in 2019, a year after Billy Graham's death, professional historians expressed deep concern. They worried that Billy Graham's Evangelistic Association might not care for the material as well as the professionals at Wheaton, and more upsetting, that the um, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association might sharply limit access. Well, private collections sometimes prioritize the preservation of a reputation over Open scholarship. This is especially true when the holdings are overseen by family or close associates. They may vet researchers denying access to those they deem too critical, and they may keep sensitive documents out of sight. Well, Elliot and Bruce, however, say the Billy Graham archives will be open to all scholars, all students and researchers, and will be run professionally. Well, his legacy is um, contested in 21st century scholarship. Uh, Some see him as an example of the best of evangelicalism and um, want to measure others against him. They point out how he was um, inclusive, pragmatic, focused on Jesus. They say he made mistakes and did some reprehensible things, not morally, but uh, in his approach, but learned from them and was humble enough to actually apologize. Graham was not a marble statue that one biographer said, writing an introduction to America's pastor, and he was the first to say so. So this will be. According to those responsible and honest uh, overview of a full um, display of his uh, work from start to finish and access to it will not be censored by those closest to him or those who loved him best. Well, we are out of time tomorrow on the program. Dr. Greg Jans, his book, Rebuilding Trust After Betrayal. We'll also hear from Dennis Prager on his Rational Bible, the latest entry in the five-part series. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Sam Maupin for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.